Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Andres Acosta, alongside with Dr. Octavia Pickett-Blakely, your co-host for our series, Obesity in GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. This series consists of six podcast episodes and three webinars provided a comprehensive approach to diagnosing and treating obesity with a specific focus on patients with GI comorbidities. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into dietary approaches for obesity management in GI patients, including debating low-carb versus low-fat diets. And we're joined by Dr. Colleen Tewksbury. We're super excited to have Colleen today. She's an PhD, MPH, registered dietitian specializing in weight management. She's a senior research investigator at the Department of Surgery at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and the Bariatric Program Manager at the University Health System. Her work centers around optimizing care and reducing barriers to treatment. Not only that, Colleen is also a spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the Weight Management House of Delegates Representative-Elect. She is past president of the Pennsylvania Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and a former president of the Philadelphia Academy. She is a facilitator for the Commission on Dietetic Registration's Certificate of Training in Obesity Interventions in Adults and a subject matter expert for its Certified Specialist in Obesity and Weight Management Board Examination. So Colleen, before we jump into our questions, let us just revisit our obesity fact from last week's podcast. Last week, the question was, which of the states in the United States had the lowest obesity prevalence? And the answer is, drum roll, please, Colorado, Colorado. So for all of you who guessed Colorado, you were correct. Andres, is that surprising to you? Absolutely not. It's been the lowest prevalence in obesity since we start tracking BMI as an indicator of obesity and continues to be. So we should learn a lot from the state of Colorado. Agree. Agree. I need to put that on my list of places to visit to understand what they're doing right there. Same here. We should go together. So Colleen, it's great to have you today. And I just wanted to start, we introduced you and all of the highlights of your training and where you are now in your career. But I'm always interested, people often ask me this question, but I'm always interested to know how my colleagues in the realm of obesity, and we're such a small and tight-knit group, what sort of sparked your interest and how you got into the field? Yeah, thank you for having me. Frankly, thinking back, it was all happenstance of just being in the right place at the right time, knowing what I enjoyed from a clinical standpoint, and just continuing to follow that path. I started seeing patients as any new grad with a bachelor's would with my RDN. And I just so happened to find myself in a bariatric surgery clinic and found the more I did, the more I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed working with the patient population. I saw lots of opportunity to be able to improve the field and just kept on running with it. If I came across something that I found I didn't really enjoy, 
I'd shift my focus. <laughs> and, and one of those was working per diem in some more acute settings that mm-hmm. d- did not work well for me and found that outpatient counseling specifically in weight management was an area that I just enjoyed contributing towards. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's really impactful work and work that you can sort of carry on throughout the course of your career. So I wholeheartedly agree with you. So let's start with some questions. I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on what would you say the most common misconception that society has about dietary approaches to weight loss? Our expectations of what dietary changes can do far exceed what we actually have evidence base around mm-hmm. and what, what they've been shown to do. We don't really expect self-directed small changes to produce large shifts in weight. But many anticipate being able to lose larger amounts of weight than what we actually expect diet to be able to provide. So gold standard intervention for a dietitian is intensive behavioral therapy, working with the dietitian, seeing them 14 times over six months and setting aside insurance coverage. That's not typically what we think of when we talk about dietary intervention, but that's the level of intensity that we typically need to be able to see significant weight change uh, when it comes to dietary changes. So when we talk about those weight loss expectations as well, we're looking at two to 8% total body weight loss, right? Or for dietary interventions for the best interventions that we have. And while this is clinically meaningful, we do expect Mm -hmm. improvements in most cardiometabolic factors it's not even close to the amount of weight that people who are presenting for these weight management treatments actually report wanting to lose, right? The vast majority of individuals want to lose closer to 20 to 30% of their total body weight. And we really only see that in bariatric surgery. So I think many times what I end up having the initial conversation with people about is let's set realistic expectations. Now, Evidence base has shown that what someone's weight loss goals are coming into an intervention really isn't predictive of the outcome. So in terms of clinical care, that really isn't pertinent, but for just generally making sure that we're we're understanding what place diet has within weight management services, really putting into perspective how much weight loss do we actually even expect or weight change do we expect and what's the level of intervention and the intensity that's needed for that. I oftentimes compare it to, let's say, mental health care treatment in that if someone's meeting with, let's say, a mental health care provider once a month, once every two months, how much of an impact do you think that's going to have for individuals? Frankly, it's not, not much, right? And we see the same thing for nutrition. So meeting with a provider only monthly or once every two months, we don't expect large weight shifts. It may be clinically meaningful, but it's not going to be the large changes that people are looking for. And many times I have to have this conversation with clinicians. It's especially when you're talking about individuals who have a body mass index of 40 or higher, we have treatment algorithms, right? To follow here, I've heard many different providers who in good faith are are recommending to patients diet and exercise. You can do it when they have a BMI of 45. And I view that as really a disservice to a patient in that that's indicative of severe metabolic disease. It's like telling somebody with a, a hemoglobin A1C of 12, diet and exercise, you can do it. When we know that that isn't the sole or primary treatment option, it may have an impact, but it's not going to produce the level of change that we expect it to many times when we're talking about these behavior changes. 
And a lot of that is, frankly, from a societal standpoint and for clinicians, rooted in weight bias and weight stigma and how we perceive weight. It's oftentimes seen as almost an individual problem or a virtue to an extent of this is someone's personal responsibility to what they choose to eat and how much they move is their individual choice. And frankly, we know that from a scientific standpoint, especially over the last two decades through randomized controlled trials and twin studies, it's predominantly driven by biology and physiology and genetics and being exposed to these obesogenic environments. It's the total inverse. A little bit by behavior makes an impact, but not as much as we culturally perceive it to be. And it's clear that when we talk about expectations, we keep thinking that this is going to make me lose the weight. I'm going to do this diet X, and we'll get into which diets we're talking. And this diet is really going to help me, or this diet helps so-and-so and is not helping me. So why do we keep thinking that there's a new diet, there's a new something, and it's going to change the expectations? What is ingrained within not only the general public, but also as experts in the field, as well as the medical community thinking that, oh, so-and-so just wrote about this new diet. I'm going to label something, time-restricted feeding. And that's really going to help me. Why this keeps happening? Food and nutrition is universal, but extremely personal and individualized. So everyone has very specific perception as to what's best per se. For them, for another individual, they may project that. And frankly, I will keep coming back to how much of that is implicit weight bias. And especially within the clinical community. And dietitians, we are notorious for this. Three out of four dietitians do exhibit a preference for thinness and not in the sense of from a health standpoint, but for a visual appeal. Two-thirds of healthcare professionals as well endorse some form of weight bias or anti-fat or fat-phobic attitudes. And that we're steeped in the same tea that everyone else is culturally. Going back to acknowledging and identifying those biases when we're talking about patient care and what type of recommendations we may be making, how much of our own and personal implicit biases are influencing what dietary approaches we may be discussing with patients. Are we talking about what's evidence-based or are we talking about what we've found works best for us individually? We're potentially recommending a behavioral intervention for a metabolic problem. And we don't do that in other areas of medicine, typically, right? Depending on what you're actually trying to focus on. There may be a component of behavioral intervention or nutrition intervention to it, but it's not typically the primary or a blanket cure-all for everyone. If we had that, my field of dietetics wouldn't exist, right? If we all knew what was the best approach for everyone, this wouldn't be an entire subsect of healthcare. We have lots of different tools. It's how. How do people actually apply this day in and day out? And again, all of that is within the context of this really challenging weight-biased environment that we all function within. When you go back and look at what were the trends around weight management research in the 
early 2000s is when you'll see a wave of all these phenomenal randomized controlled trials comparing low-fat approaches versus low-carb approaches. Now, for both of these approaches, typically from a dietary standpoint, what the instructions provided to the patients were predominantly to stay within the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges or the AMDRs. And just for low fat to stay on the lower end of the acceptable range of about 20% intake coming from fat and for carb to get lowered to like 45%. Some of these studies did recommend a comparable caloric intake for the two. Others just recommended either go to low fat or go to low carb. And for the vast majority of these studies, what was actually found was in the first about three to six months overarchingly, those who were subscribing to more of a low carbohydrate approach tended to lose more weight quicker. Now, when you look at longer studies following patients out a year plus, that's typically a wash. That effect and that difference between low carb and low fat tends to diminish by one year out. And low fat versus low carb is pretty comparable at that point. And even in that initial weight loss period, we're talking about 4% difference in weight loss between low carb versus low fat. So when it comes to clinical practice for dietetics as to how we approach this conversation with individuals, we actually take two steps back and talk about what are you aiming towards? It's actually just reducing caloric intake. So when you look at the studies that actually differed in terms of how many calories patients reported eating, the amount of calories that they were eating actually tracked with how much weight they were losing. And those that were on a low carb tended to eat fewer calories than those who were on low fat diets. And when you instructed participants to eat the same amount of calories, just have differing macronutrient distributions, for the vast majority of randomized controlled trials, you saw comparable and not statistically different weight losses for, for the even up to three to six months. So what this tells us is it's less the macronutrient distribution for the vast majority of these individuals and more just the caloric content. How many calories are they eating throughout the day? So when I'm sitting down with the patient, we'll talk about one, it's getting to know their history, what's worked well for you in the past, what hasn't, but then also what are your biggest challenges and struggles in the past when you've tried to, to lose weight and trying to identify what might make them a better candidate for one approach versus the other. Because both are reducing caloric intake, it's just which mechanism is going to be most sustainable. So for some people, if they have a high carbohydrate intake throughout the day, that might be a low hanging goal for them to be able to try and reduce some of that and reduce overall calorie intake. But that is very difficult for many people to sustain as well. That's a common refrain from patients that's difficult to sustain lower carb intake. On the other hand, for low fat, lowering the fat content uh, many times it's a little bit easier of an approach from a dietary standpoint. There are lots of different options available for substitutions for different high fat products, but it also reduces the satisfaction level. People don't feel as full. You don't get the same mouthfeel of low fat foods where they're not coating your tongue in the same way. You don't get the same level of dietary satisfaction. And for some people, that's of importance to them. So ultimately, it's not for me to decide as a dietitian. We like to say, try to avoid using shoulds for patients. So it's more of a, these are your options. Let's talk about what's worked well for you in the past, what hasn't. This is what you're aiming towards. What's the best mechanism for you to be able to achieve that? And this could be starting off with a 
bigger picture discussion, or it could be as narrowly focused as looking at a food record for a day for an individual and talking about, all right, if you were to repeat this day, how could you reduce 200 calories throughout the day? And they may choose to reduce portion sizes, reduce frequency of something, or to find a lower calorie substitute. And that might be more carb-driven or fat-driven. And frankly, whether the individual is aware of that end goal of it being low fat versus low carb is somewhat moot. We're finding within behavioral counseling, you're still getting them to the same place without focusing just on those numbers. It's more looking at what are your overarching goals? How do you want to track this progress? And what are the specific mechanisms that you can employ to be able to achieve that? I'm always fascinated when I hear experts like yourself in the field of diets and weight loss that tell us that basically the debate about low fat versus low carb should be over. And unfortunately, we see completely the contrary. We feel that there are these two fields are very passionate about each other. They go very hard against each other. When the reality, the data, and what you very nice summarized is telling us that both work, find your preference, and stick to it. How do we move forward? I think ultimately what we're looking at for, for moving forward is stepping away from this idea of a nutrition prescription. That just because I, as the nutrition expert, know something doesn't mean that I need to impart all of that wisdom onto the person sitting in front of me as a patient. If they're making nutrition changes that help reach their goals of a lower calorie intake or increasing satiety, the minutia of that level of clinical care isn't always something that would come up. And we don't know that it's actually beneficial from a clinical standpoint to get to that level of granularity for that discussion. We might just talk about how do you overall reduce this? Let's just work towards progress. And what goals do you want to set for yourself? And that shift is predominantly driven by two different things from my perspective. It's one saying that the idea of handing someone a nutrition prescription and sending them on their way, we have found is not effective. The idea of self-directed nutrition interventions is something that's very popular within the media. And it's something, again, that is a virtue signaling component in terms of how we describe this culturally, whether or not you're able to make those changes on your own. Again, treating it as if it's an individual problem rather than a metabolic disease state. We're not going to be able to treat obesity or help someone in terms of weight management in one interaction. Or alone, right? A dietitian can't work independently in this sense. We need to have interprofessional team care and patient-centered care. And that requires multiple visits. The worst outcome that you could have is if someone doesn't show up. So I think making sure someone shows back up to another appointment and continues on with care, and we're helping meet them where they're at. Intermittent fasting is an all-encompassing term that we typically end up breaking down into two different groups or two different approaches. One is time-restricted eating, and two is more of the what we would classically think of a intermittent fasting of almost a five and two approach. So the time-restricted eating is exactly that. It's having a window of time that you ad-lib that there aren't really any very specific or regimented restrictions around that. For many people, it depends on their schedules. It ends up being, let's say, a 10 a.m. to a 6 p.m. window, whatever works best for them. But an eight-hour window of caloric intake and a 16-hour window of 
fasting of only calorie-free liquids during that time. For the five and two method, it's a very low calorie diet for two days of the week, typically not one after the other. They're not back to back. And then five days of not unrestricted, but what would be considered quote unquote reasonable dietary intake for that individual. And for these approaches, we have more studies that are being published and that are being conducted currently assessing these two different approaches with a wide variety of populations. Frankly, it is very early to be able to say that this is a best practice or what we would call in the nutrition community, something that meets the criteria of medical nutrition therapy, that we would utilize it as a go-to for an intervention. However, the data is strong enough and suggestive enough at this point that it may be a good option for individuals to pilot, especially those who have tried, let's say, self-monitoring. Our gold standard of keeping a food journal day in and day out is tedious. It is humbling for many individuals in that they they really have to do a lot of self-reflection throughout the day, and that can be upsetting for them for many individuals and counterproductive. And it poses a lot of additional challenges for people who have busy lives. Whereas time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting is very simplistic. Someone does not have to be able to calculate out calories or have a smartphone with access to data all the time to be able to utilize an app or have a pocket or a purse to carry around a food journal. It is very simplistic. You need a clock. (laughs) You need to know what day of the week it is. And it may be that this is a viable option in the future for individuals we might find through more randomized control trials, that this is an effective way of overall reducing caloric intake. If someone is typically eating from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and you truncate that, to eight hours, but say just eat normally as you typically would, but only eight hours. And you're cutting out, let's say a 300 calorie small breakfast and your bedtime snack of 200 calories, it's a 500 calorie reduction. We would expect that to have some level of change over time. Overarchingly, you're just reducing the overall caloric intake. And for many people that's appealing. It's straightforward. It's simple. From a dietary standpoint, we have two concerns, though, and two things that we would always recommend work with a professional before starting these types of approaches, predominantly because we really want to, for especially time-restricted eating, be cognizant of any sort of over-restrictive practices that lead to episodes, potentially, for those that are at risk of any sort of binging or loss of control tendencies. Additionally, having almost like a last supper syndrome or a food funeral type of approach with time-restricted eating. It's not meant to be to have all the calories that you did prior to starting this approach in that eight-hour window. It's meant to really just truncate this and have a standard dietary approach. So working with someone to be able to navigate that is, is always helpful, but also for the five and two mechanism to watch out for any sort of micronutrient deficiencies or potential issues from a nutrition standpoint of not getting in enough nutrition. Additionally, for both of those, if anyone, of course, right, we're medical professionals, if anyone has any additional diagnoses of diabetes, chronic kidney disease, anything that has pretty significant nutrition changes that are recommended to be able to manage those disease states, best to discuss with either your physician or, of course, your registered dietitian as to whether or not that is even a safe approach and that you wouldn't create more damage in some shape or form. But for the the average healthy 
adult that's only looking for weight management with no additional comorbidities, these may be viable options for them. It's only a trend or a fad until we have the evidence base to show whether or not it's effective. (laughs) So we're kind of in that limbo space. This might be a viable option for individuals, but we're not quite there. As long as we're explicit with patients of letting them know that this might work for you, but keeping in mind, we don't have a lot of evidence base that it does. Let's trial it and let's talk about it in two weeks, see where you're at. Again, it's that setting someone up to come back in for the next appointment. I think one of the worst things that we could do as providers is tell someone, no, don't do that. That's not recommended because you're setting someone up to just not follow up or they'll do it and not tell you, right? <laughs> and try out, which is, is an even worries, more worrisome situation to be in. So discussing what do you like about this? What's appealing? What do you know about it? Getting to know your your individual patient in front of you and uh, being able to help leverage what's appealing to them and seeing how you can help them figure out how to apply this. Not to say that it's the best option that we have available, but there's not a whole lot of data saying that's particularly harmful. You're mentioning the word low calorie. And I'm starting to think as a father of two young kids that calories were a little bit like Bruno, right? We don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about calories. Should we talk about calories? What are the guidelines telling us? When it comes to adults, most individuals are aware of the concept that you need to reduce caloric intake or increase caloric output to be able to produce weight shifts over time. If we're just talking about dietary approaches, not talking about surgical or pharmacotherapy, because that'll bring in different parts of the scale that we're trying to tip. In terms of dietary approaches, the ultimate goal is to reduce overall caloric intake. When we've looked at other approaches, let's say what little data we currently have around a non-diet quote-unquote approach or even intuitive eating, in practice, they have potentially many benefits. We have not seen that weight loss is one of those benefits. And we don't fully understand that's an emerging area of science, but Ultimately, if you're meeting with a dietitian or if you're meeting with someone individually, the goal is just to reduce overall caloric intake. Frankly, I'll have patients come to me all the time and other dietitians of how many calories should I be prescribing this person or how many calories should I be eating? And my response is typically, let's see how much you're eating now and let's just work on reducing from there. Because part of this is just how do you sustain this over time? Now, part of the reason clinically I am not a subscriber and behaviorally of giving someone a calorie prescription is because the studies that we do have looking at self-reported intake versus actual intake, we know even those who are really well-skilled at tracking their calories underestimate their caloric intake by about 30 to 50%. So as long as they're consistent with that margin of error with their tracking, it doesn't really matter that they have that margin of error, right? If they are tracking that they're eating 1,800 calories a day, but they're actually eating 2,200. And then I come in and say, you know what? 2,200 is the amount of calories that we recommend that you consume for based on Mifflin St. Dior for you to lose weight over time. They're going to increase their caloric intake and ultimately we would expect weight gain, right? But they're already at the, the recommended calorie level. So instead, it's just where are you at now? Stay consistent with your measurement and take that margin of error into account and starting to reduce from there. So let me push this a little bit farther. When we were creating the American Gastroenterology Association Power Program to look for obesity management in a multidisciplinary program, the best evidence that we could gather was the evidence from the Donna Ryan and Mike Jensen guidelines on 
lifestyle intervention. And they talk very clearly that one of the highest evidence for management obesity is calculating the Harris-Benedict or the energy expenditure of a patient and create a 500 calorie deficit. And that's what we decided to add in our guidelines. So what are your thoughts about telling a patient this 500 calorie caloric deficit based on Harris-Benedict? Because in some patients, particularly those who are only burning 13, 1400 calories, that might be 800 or 900 calories a day. In some other patients, that will be 2000 or more calories a day. So Give us your thoughts as that's what we have actually recommended at this point. And of course, needs a lot more studies and thoughtful process behind. So the idea of blanket recommendations for anything within nutrition, we know is just not typically effective and it's not meant for everyone. It all depends on the person that's sitting in front of you and what type of needs they have. And that takes a lot more time to have that conversation. And from an assessment standpoint, it takes a higher level of skill in terms of being able to get that information in an efficient period of time, really make an individual feel heard. And that's part of the reason why oftentimes we'll just flip it around and say, this is the first time that we're meeting. Instead of me telling you what you should be eating, again, that should word, mm-hmm. trying to take that out, tell me how many calories have you been tracking? And let's work from there. It's where that science of calorie reduction meets the art of actually making it happen in a counseling setting. So a good place to start, especially if you don't have dietitians within your institution, is at eatright.org in the find a nutrition professional section. And that's for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that you can actually look up what registered dietitians practice in your area and their subspecialty practice as well. Additionally, the Commission on Dietetic Registration has a registration system for that interdisciplinary board certification that you had mentioned earlier in my introduction of the certification in obesity and weight management. So that is the CSOWM credential, and that is similar to the board certification for obesity medicine for physicians, but for allied health professionals. And that way you can also identify who is an expert in weight management. So similar to to other healthcare areas, dietitians get a small component of their training is actually weight management. So this is a subspecialized field in and of itself. So a dietitian may not be as experienced or have the level of expertise for counseling or weight management that you may require for your practice. So finding someone that has that additional designation would also be beneficial. And it's starting to collaborate with them. There are many different practices that I've seen throughout, especially rural Pennsylvania, of private practice clinicians working together and creating referral patterns to be able to to best care for the patients in their communities and just starting to, to build relationships with other individuals. Important to note, again, just like physicians, not all dietitians have this subspecialized training. It is not as if, although we are all experts in nutrition, we may not all be experts in weight management and counseling. So making sure that you are finding someone with the advanced training that you need for your practice. Let me finish with the last one question. There's been a lot of struggles on the reimbursement side. We want to work with dietitians and then patients come back and saying, my insurance don't cover that, or I have declined, or I can only see them once and, and so on, and it's better than me. What do you think is happening? How do you see the future regarding reimbursement to collaborate and care multidisciplinary care for our patients with obesity? As with areas of medical billing, a lot of what we are able to do is dictated by CMS. And that pulls in public policy, right? And navigating that system. So especially within weight management, currently CMS only 
covers intensive behavioral therapy for weight management within primary care settings and does not a lot for private practice or subspecialty groups such as Dr. Pickett Blakely's group or my own to be able to bill for intensive behavioral therapy, our gold standard intervention for nutrition through CMS and other private payers follow suit with that. So the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act, which has been in circulation for a few years now, will be key to being able to make services more widely available. Currently, for most commercial payers, they only cover about three hours of dietitian services per year. And that can be broken up typically in 15 or 30 minute increments. That is not the level of intensity that's typically needed to see substantial change from dietary interventions. It is not the gold standard of what we actually see in most of these behavioral and dietary studies. And yet we still expect those same outcomes from very little interaction and intensity of those interactions with a registered dietitian. So reimbursement is a a huge challenge within dietetics, and it's something that the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has been advocating for and trying to advance for a while now. What we're doing right now within our own institution and what I've done in a managerial role is predominantly to see what are creative ways that we can actually show our monetary value. And I am in a group that also provides bariatric surgery. So we've been able to show that the more frequently you meet with a dietitian within our own data internally, the lower the rates of postoperative complications. And we've translated that into a cost number to be able to advocate for or justify having the level of staffing that we do without billing for our services. And those types of quality or value-based payment type systems, I think are going to be more where we're going in terms of nutrition reimbursement rather than fee-for-service. Fee-for-service has been an uphill battle. So that is where I think we're going in terms of financing for dietetics, but we're still in the beginning phases of it. And clinical administrators like myself are still trying to navigate being able to set up those models to be able to provide better care for patients. But it's not an easy area to navigate both for clinicians and also for patients. So there are formal affiliations and formal coalitions or networks that have been established, but typically for subspecialty groups many times. So for example, around the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act, there is the Obesity Care Action Network, and that is a formal coalition of multiple organizations that are more weight management focused to be able to advocate for better coverage for weight management services moving forward collaborative efforts are going to be very important moving forward to be able to show that this is not just dietetics trying to be able to get more work or being able to be able to see more individuals on a regular basis. It should be part of the standard of care for individuals. But unfortunately, we're, we're not quite there yet. But the more groups that come to the table to advocate, the better. Absolutely. Let me just finish by saying that Hopefully one day we'll see the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act passed with bipartisan support as we just saw the Daylight Saving Bill approved this week. So there should be no doubt that obesity should be treated and reimbursed. Anyway, with that, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Colleen. And thank you everyone for tuning in for today's episode which is the second episode of our series, Obesity and GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative, which was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordics. 
I'd also like to extend thanks to Colleen for joining us today. The conversation was absolutely fantastic, and we hope to chat with you again. For our listening audience, I'd like to bring to you today our obesity factoid or question. After what decade of life does your basal metabolic rate start to decline? Continue listening for this answer, which we'll give in our next episode. And in our upcoming episodes, we'll also discuss updates on medications and devices, evaluating patient outcomes, and adapting treatment plans and reimbursement. For additional resources from this program, including the release of additional podcast episodes and webinars, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.